When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years and then he died. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The fruit of thy womb, thy womb. After Noah was born, womb, Lamech lived womb, 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth.
November 1903. A new boy arrived in class today. Brother Kevin put him sitting beside me down the back. Even though Brother Kevin didn't say anything, we knew there was something about him. Everyone turned and stared down the class at him, except me. If I had stared at him, I would have had to look straight into his face. He got up and left just before 12 o'clock, though I noticed he only did it after a nod from Brother Kevin. After he was gone, we were told he was Jewish and he would be treated the same as everyone else except he would miss the religion classes. At break time, I asked him where he went. He said he had to sit on a chair in the corridor and he was supposed to study, but he could hear us saying the rosary. At least, I told him it was called the rosary. He wanted to know, did I know what fruit of thy womb Jesus mean? I told him, how would I know? We just had to say it. So he said it. Everybody said it. He said, womb was where a baby came from. And anyhow, he didn't believe in Jesus. And that's why he was a Jew. I warned him never to tell Brother Kevin. And never let on. He knew where a baby came from. Europe, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, was a place of many and great changes. The pace of industrialization grew ever greater and the economies of Western Europe surged ahead of their Eastern counterparts. Eastern Europe still lay in the grip of Tsarist Russia, including the greater part of historic Poland. And in Eastern Europe, the damning coexistence of unbridled population growth and extreme poverty in that pre-industrialised era resulted in a tidal wave of emigration of the poor and dispossessed. For some in the Jewish community, their endurance was tested even more as their rights were held up and examined under a legal microscope. These places they had come to when the golden era in Spain had been brought to an horrific and bloody conclusion by the Inquisition. And now it was time to leave, move on again. They headed west to France where their civil rights were guaranteed and beyond to the distant, rich horizons of America. How did some come to land in Cork in the late 19th century? Could it be true that these non-English-speaking people mistook the ship's captain's call of Cork for New York? Or did they decide to try their luck in a country where tolerance was a political catch-cry? However it came about, by 1904, a Jewish community of 25 to 30 families had become well-established in Limerick. December 1903. I've made good friends with Joshua. He talks English in a funny way, as if his tongue was heavy with fur or something like that. He says I should hear his mother and father, that they only know a little English at all, and they pronounce all their W's as V's. He said someday I should come and visit them at home. Brother Kevin says I am a martyr, to be taking such an interest, and I'm showing great aptitude for the missions. I hope he doesn't mention it to Mam and Dad. I brought up the subject at home, only saying that Joshua was sitting beside me and that we got on well. My father says that we should keep to our own and that others have funny ideas. Mam explained, saying that there was a lot of competition among the traders and shopkeepers since the Jews had come up with the weekly payment system. The instalment system, I think it's called. It had upset the balance a bit, she said, especially in my father's wholesale business. 
more people were buying off the Jewish traders because they could pay a little each week, which meant that the Jewish wholesaler was doing better too. I was ready to say that Dad always said that competition was a good thing and that it was the survival of the fittest and that was how he had built up the business. But he got out of the chair all of a sudden and said he'd be late for the confraternity. As he opened the door he shouted at me that I had no permission from him to go gallivanting around Colony Street. When first in Ireland I arrived, I shed hot bitter tears. Penniless in a foreign land, I faced the coming years. Upon a frugal scale I lived, so as to pay my way. How hard I toiled that I might earn a few shillings each day. I did not scorn to carry a bag and deal in humble wares. My back bent low, I carried on, heedless of stones and stairs. In such a way I struggled on, scarce knowing what to do. I changed my trade a score of times, ever trying something new. Still my spirit was unconquered, and my confidence survived. I forgot my previous failures, and as a shopkeeper thrived. Pictures, frames, or writing paper, I have all one may require. Come to me and give your custom, if these things you do desire. Dirty, rain-sodden, gutter-washed lanes and back alleys. Tumble-down tenements, one upon the other. Barefooted children, ragged, careworn women anaesthetised men, a class apart. This was the poor of Limerick in 1904. Out of this came the great surge of life and life-giving prayer that was the backbone of the confraternity. 7,000 men and boys aligned with God and his representatives on earth, their priests. January 1904 My father returned late from the confraternity last night. He had five or six others with him. I would guess they were probably prefects or sub-prefects like himself. They woke me up with all the commotion they made, and I could hear my mother telling them to hush. There was a lot of excited talk, but I couldn't make it out, as ma'am came up and closed my bedroom door tight. Something was going on, I could tell, but I fell back to sleep, even with the muffled sounds of the meeting coming up through the floorboards. Today in school, Joshua said, maybe, that I'd prefer not to be seen with him. I asked him, what did he mean? Everyone is used to him now, and so long as Brother Kevin keeps thinking I'm trying to convert Joshua, they won't bother about us being friends. But Joshua says that there are things happening, that his father got reports of it first thing this morning. There was a meeting, and now everyone thinks that Jews are out to kill them, and rob their children, and murder them. The priest told them all this, all the men at the meeting. He said, that nobody would want to buy from the Jews now. Though his father said at breakfast that people would have more sense and that it would all die down in time. I said that was it. It was one of those 
flash-in-the-pan things my mother's always talking about. And his father has a million customers. How could they all turn against him for no reason at all? And wasn't Brother Kevin a sort of priest? And didn't he think that Joshua was the same as anyone else? New York, July 1902. A worrying incident took place today between two different factions in the immigrant community. A funeral procession was making its way down a certain New York street on the Lower East Side. A man of the Jewish faith had died, and large numbers had turned out to follow the black-plumed hearse. Some factory workers were on a meal break, sitting in the warm sunlight watching the proceedings. Inexplicably, these Irishmen, for such was their nationality, saw fit to pelt the Jews with whatever missiles were to hand. For the most part, this turned out to be rubbish, discarded leftovers of their own lunches, however sodden and foul-smelling. The mourners, at first shocked and taken aback, in time saw fit to retaliate, and general scenes of commotion and mayhem ensued, resulting in the police being called. It seems that these two factions, the Irish and the Jews, are in competition with each other for dominance of the Lower East Side that they would resort to fisticuffs against each other sooner than they would combine together to improve everybody's lot.
They slew St. Stephen, the first martyr, and St. James the Apostle. And ever since, as often as possibility afforded, they did not hesitate to shed Christian blood. And that even in the meanest and most cruel manner, as in the case of the holy martyr St. Simeon, who, though a mere child, they took and crucified out of hatred and derision for our Lord Jesus Christ. Nowadays, they dare not kidnap and slay Christian children, but they will not hesitate to expose them to a longer and even more cruel martyrdom by taking their clothes off their back and the bit out of their mouths. Twenty years ago, the Jews were known only by name and evil repute in Limerick. They were sucking the blood of other nations, but these nations rose up and turned them out, and they came to our land to fasten themselves on us like leeches and to draw our blood when they had been forced away by other countries. They have indeed fastened themselves on us. And the question is whether or not we will allow them to fasten themselves on us even more until we and our children are the helpless victims of their rapacity. I did not scorn to carry a bag and deal in humble wares. My back bent low, I carried on, heedless of stones and stairs. And if you say, as some say nowadays, that the Jews could not commit such crimes, that is to suppose that man cannot break God's law nor be a criminal. That is begging the question. Above the divine law, above the Bible, the Jew puts human law, the Talmud. Now, the Talmud not only permits, but commands the Jew and recommends him to deceive and kill a Christian every time occasion offers. On the night of January the 12th, 1904, Father John Cray, director of the Holy Family Confraternity, preached his infamous sermon. His motives, he assured all, were not racist or bigoted. He had, he thundered, right on his side. He had the law of God on his side. The Jews were bleeding dry the poor peoples of his parish with their devious methods of trade. While unwitting limerick shopkeepers and salesmen were watching their livelihoods dwindle to nothing. His words were like manna from heaven, to his mostly poor and often destitute congregation. Many were in debt to traders, both Jewish and Christian. If, as Father Cray said, the Jews were an immoral and deceiving people, then they had no obligation to repay those debts owed to Jewish traders. 
the Christian traders held office as prefects and sub-prefects in the confraternity. They held a special meeting on Friday evening the 22nd to consider what action would be taken. The following resolutions were proposed and adopted unanimously. That we tender to Father Cray our best thanks for his recent lectures on the ways and means of Jewish trading and that this meeting express their fullest confidence with their views. We are of the opinion that our spiritual director, Father Cray, was actuated by no motives except the good of the confraternity and the general benefit of the workers of this city, especially as regards its poorest members, and he was no way actuated by any feeling of malignity to the Jews. February 1904 I asked my father why the Jews had come to Limerick. Where was their home? What land was theirs? I wanted to know. He said that they had no land. It was taken from them. That they wandered the face of the earth. Like us. Like us Irish then, with the British taking what is rightfully ours. No, he said, that was different. We Irish aren't usurers and corruptors. We may go to other countries, but wherever it is, Irishmen aren't afraid to put their backs into it. Not afraid of honest work. I asked him, how could it be different here for the Jews? Weren't they doing honest work, buying and selling like he was? Why should we be fighting the Jews when we are all the same? He has his head in the newspapers all the time, though he says he shouldn't be bothered, that he could predict what would be in them. He says the lines are drawn in blood. From the Limerick Hebrew Congregation, Synagogue Chambers, 63 Colony Street, to Michael David Esquire, Dorky, Dublin. Sir, being thoroughly convinced of your religious and political tolerance, I, as a minister of the Limerick Hebrew Congregation, take the liberty of intruding on your valuable time in intimation to you our sad condition, brought about by an address recently delivered by one of the Redemptorist Fathers of Limerick. It is not for one to speak well of oneself, but as the present occasion is such as demands nothing but the truth, I feel necessitated to say that within the last quarter of a century, during which the few Jewish families have resided in Limerick, they have lived in perfect peace and harmony with their Christian neighbours of all classes. The feelings of respect between them and their Christian neighbours seemed hitherto to be quite mutual, so that they were utterly at a loss to assign this sudden event to any cause on our part. As to the assertion made by the reverend gentleman, we are in a position to pronounce them devoid of any particle of truth. Surely the learned lecturer had been entirely misinformed. Whether this anti-Semitic outburst had its roots in religious prejudice, or whether it was prompted by local traders, I leave to your own discretion. And we hope that whatever view you take of the situation, you will, as an Irish patriot and as a friend of mankind, use your influence in averting what seems in all probability to issue in a general boycott against us and perhaps in a regular anti-Semitic riot 
seeing already several of us already have been insulted, assaulted. Joshua still comes to school, but his father walks with him and is there at the gate waiting at going home time. Sometimes filthy language is thrown at them as they make their way back to Colooney Street. Joshua's father has had stones thrown at him and he has stopped collecting from the people in Dixon's Lane and Carey's Lane. Even the women and children come out, Joshua says and it is impossible to avoid their missiles in the, in the narrow lanes. And there is nowhere to run, even if they wanted to. Some people have been arrested, but it doesn't make any difference. Nobody comes into Joshua's father's shop anymore. Days can go by without selling anything. All the other Jewish traders are the same. My father spends most evenings at meetings or buried in the newspapers. He says the Protestants wouldn't you know, have taken the side of the Jews and are making charity collections for them. He told the newspaper boy that he wouldn't be taking the Freeman's Journal anymore, given the way Michael Davitt is siding with them too. At least Arthur Griffith in The United Irishman has got it right and can see the Jews for what they are. It is time that the people in the other cities of Ireland emulated the example of Limerick and freed themselves from the octopus grip of the Jewish usurers who are swarming into this country to prey upon its people. The working men, the shopkeeper, the farmer, the merchant, all are threatened by these cunning and immoral people who use their religion as a shield for their usury and raise the cry of persecution to frighten off those who attempt to expose their nefarious practices. As we go to our office each day, we pass half a dozen offices with names such as O'Brien above the doors. But the O'Briens are German and Russian Jews 
who are day by day entangling farmers and struggling businessmen throughout Ireland in their usurious toils and squeezing out their lifeblood. Their priest who had done so much good in preserving the people of Limerick from these vultures has aroused indignation and distress. Had he not been an honest and courageous man, he could never have aroused such feelings. What motivated Father John Cray? He was not an old man, his mind subsumed into the doctrines of his faith to the exclusion of all and everyone else. His words from the pulpit were to have an immediate and lasting effect on a small and vulnerable community. Is it possible that he couldn't foresee this? His sources for his vitriolic abuse of the Jews were Histoire Universelle, L'Église Catholique, written by Abbe Rohrbacher, and The History of the Popes by Pasteur, which give broad historical context to the necessity of getting rid of Jews. The Jews, this tome expounded, were the root cause of the Spanish Inquisition. They also were the cause of persecution of Catholics in France and the expulsion of religious orders from there. So is that where we must look for Father Cray's motivation? He was a redemptorist priest, and the redemptorists, along with other religious orders, had been expelled from France following the long-drawn-out trial of Captain Albert Dreyfus. Dreyfus, a Jew amongst the largely Catholic general staff of the French military, was tried and found guilty of treason in 1896. The trial was an anti-Semitic plot, screamed the Liberal newspapers. There was no other reason to target Dreyfus, an exemplary officer. The Catholic mass circulation newspaper La Croix, on the other hand, called for a prohibition on Jews in areas such as education, where they would be in charge of Christians. Unease about the admittance of secret evidence against Dreyfus into the trial resulted in his exoneration in 1906. But well before that, the opinions of people like the writer Emile Zola gained the upper hand in the affair. Dreyfus, Zola propounded, was the victim of a conspiracy between the military and the Jesuits to rid public life of Jews and their influence. The backlash against other religious orders, especially Catholics whose elders had supported the anti-Dreyfus side, was remorseless. The Catholic orders, in turn, decried the Jewish plot to oust them from the universities and schools, even from their monasteries. There is no evidence to suggest that Father Cray was in France at any time during the Dreyfus trial, or that he had contact with any of the French redemptorists. But no doubt, the expulsions and the anti-Jewish feelings at the time, amongst the Catholic Conservatives, were the subject of much debate amongst all Redemptorists. St Andrew was taken as a child by Jews headed by a rabbi. They took him into a wood and placed him on a large stone and circumcised him, uttering at the same time most horrible blasphemies against the name of Jesus. The boy begged for mercy, but they took him, opened his veins, fastened him in the form of a cross to a tree, and ran away. If I were a Jew who had settled in Limerick, I would consider the advisability of shaking its dust from my feet with as little delay as possible. April 1904 Joshua came to school for the last time today. 
Still his father walks him to the gate and waits for him at the gate again. He is very quiet, saying very little to me. We are having none of the fun that we used to have. There is no laughter anymore. We ate our lunches in silence. At least he nibbled at his meagre lunch and I could hardly swallow mine. I offered him some of mine, but he refused. It was Brother Kevin who told us Joshua was to leave and that his family was going to Dublin. There was no other explanation. Not a word from Joshua, whose head hung down all the time. Brother Kevin said that Joshua had been a bright, hard-working and mannerly boy and that we would be sorry to see him go. We all clapped. My father is in better humour these days. There are not so many meetings at the house, and he says business is better than ever. Right will always win out, he says, and that Michael Davitt should heed his own words rather than take up the cause of aliens. This afternoon, when my father was out and my mother was busy, I quietly left the house and ran as fast as I could. I intended to find Joshua's house and knock on the door and then but I stopped at the corner of Colooney Street and peered around, my heart thumping in my chest. I felt there was some sort of strange air about the place. Perhaps it was the silence. All the closed doors and fastened windows. No children playing in the street, not even a dog. A movement at the far end of the street caught my eye and then I noticed the horse and cart piled high with trunks and bits of furniture. Then a man and a boy came out of the house. I recognised Joshua and his father. They were carrying a box between them, treading very carefully as if they had some kind of precious cargo. Suddenly I knew what was in the box. Joshua often spoke of the precious things his parents brought with them from the east, things they wouldn't go anywhere without. When the box was placed on the cart, Joshua's father turned and went to the door of the house. There he took from a hole in the doorpost a little case. In this case there is a tiny scroll, a mezusa. Joshua had told me that this is a sign saying, this home is a Jewish home and that God is always with them.
सा जी